We're going to be primarily in Romans 1 today, and we're going to continue our study of the five solas of the Reformation. Uh, Now, you guys have heard me talk about this. Um, We are a very scripturally oriented church, and so when we teach scripture, we inevitably teach doctrine. And we want to make sure that our church is grounded in the truth of the faith. And so when we say the five solas, a lot of people are like, what is that? Well, it actually comes out of the Reformation. When the church was drifting away from the truth of the gospel, during the Reformation, there was essentially this return to scriptural, biblical teaching. And so what happened is language was developed. It was in Latin. That's why it's sola. Um, Language was developed to clarify the beliefs of the church. They weren't brand new. They weren't made up. These are things we had believed from the beginning that were clarified. And this is critical. Anytime you hear about teaching about like a council or a catechism, and they'll say, see, that's when they just made up this belief. No, that belief was there from the beginning in Scripture. And because error was arising, clear doctrinal language came about to clarify it. So it is with the five solas. You don't have to know them in Latin. Um, that's not important at all. Here they are in English. It is that salvation in Christ is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by the authority of Scripture alone, and to the glory of God alone. And so we talked many times about how salvation is by grace and not merit. It's not because of some inerrant value in me or some awesomeness that I am that God saves me. It is completely by His grace, not because of anything I bring to the table. It is through faith alone and not works. I don't work for my salvation. Out of the, as a result of my salvation, I do good works, but it is a fruit and not a cause. Right? In Christ alone. My salvation is in Christ alone. No other deity, no other belief system, no other idol. It is Christ alone. He is the one who saves me, and it's because I am in Him that I am saved, and I get the righteousness of Him because He has paid the sin debt on the cross and risen from the dead. According to Scripture alone, we talked about the authority for the gospel, for the believer, is the Word of God. Scripture alone. It is not... Uh, While there is value in church tradition, it is not an authority over or against Scripture, right? The, The Catholic Church and all of its teaching does not get to say that they trump Scripture in any way, right? Even me, I'm studied, I'm knowledgeable, we have elders that have authority, but it is not authority in contrast to the Scripture. Scripture always trumps we mentioned this. Somebody can come along and say, like, I have new revelation from God. And I can say, like, no, probably not. Scripture is complete. And if you do have something that's brand new, it should align up with Scripture. And if it doesn't line up with Scripture, it's false. If it does line up with Scripture, it's not necessary. So then I have to question, this is probably not from God. All this leads us, though, that all of this is for God's glory alone. Right? Not for the glory of man or any idol. It is for God's glory. So as we're setting up, keeping in mind, we're going to primarily be in Romans 1. But I want to set this up with a few key passages so that you can see this is not something that's just plopped in Scripture somewhere. It's a theme that runs throughout the Word of God. Uh, But before I do that, I want to pray. Um, Father God, thank you for, we've already offered you glory for what you have done this week. You saved Milton. Um, you, you discipled people. You worked through us. You kept us safe on the trip. You ministered here. Um, Lord, you have done so much. You deserve so much glory. Uh, God, receive glory. But also in this time, 
Would you anoint the words that I speak that they would be according to your will and not mine? By your Holy Spirit, illuminate the word of God that it would be clear and understood by us. Convict us in the areas where we fall short and empower us by your Holy Spirit to obey, to respond in faith and receive glory in this time as we discuss this together in Christ's name. Amen. So first thing I'm going to point out is in Colossians 1, 15 and 16. You don't have to turn here. You're welcome to. It says he, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. I have to stop right there just because I know that Jehovah's Witnesses are a cult that falsely teaches something out of this verse. The word firstborn does not mean born first. It is a title of preeminence, similarly to where we see Esau and Jacob. Jacob gets the title of firstborn, even though he is born second. Very important, because otherwise well, somebody will try to tell you that Jesus is a created being. The Son, as the second person of the Trinity, has eternally existed. Jesus was not created. He was born in the first century, but that's not what this is referring to. This firstborn of all creation is a title of preeminence. This is a title related to glory, that Jesus is to receive glory. We read on. For by him all things were created... Another reference to Jesus being God, by the way. By, things all, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him. Making sense? That everything has been created by God for his glory. Whether it be human beings or leaders or the, the world itself or the people and everything by God for his glory. Lock that into our brain. This is important. So everything and everyone was created for God's glory and exists for his glory. Isaiah 42, 8 similarly says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God is saying, I am a jealous God. I do not allow anyone or anything else to receive glory but me. Lock that down. Everything is created for God's glory, and he doesn't let anything else or anyone else have it. Next verse says, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Doubling down on this thing that like even human beings are created for God's glory. So if we're putting this in our mind, we're burning this in, that God's created everything for his glory, he does not share that glory, then Genesis 3 gets really serious. Genesis 3, I'm going to begin in verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Little quick note, the serpent begins by questioning God's word. Like, hey, did God really say? Immediately, this is an effort to erode a high view of God's word. And the woman responds by twisting what God says a little bit. That whole, neither shall you touch it, God never said that. Reading on, it says, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
Understand that this temptation here is a temptation not just for fruit that tastes good. The temptation is that you're going to be as smart as God. You're going to get to be like God. You are going to be on a similar plane to God. Can you understand what's happening here? That the temptation is for man or woman or mankind to elevate ourselves above God's glory. What did it say in Isaiah? God doesn't share glory. What is happening in Genesis 3 is serious business. Not just because it's disobedience. But specifically, the form of dis I mean, it is serious because it's disobedience. But notably, that specific disobedience is one of pride and self-idolatry. Verse 6 says, so, that when the, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. This is, this is the beginning of everything that has gone wrong in the world. Is Adam and Eve sinned, and death And all that came with it was invited into the world. We understand that the very first lie was to question God's word. And the very first sin was a disobedience related to me somehow seeking to be like God for my own glory rather than from his. Everybody with me? All right. Cool. So let's jump into Romans 1. Uh, so many of you all know I really like Romans. It's, our, it's a very clear systematic theology, and I like things like logic, and so it's exciting. Paul, after some pleasantries and introductions, begins the focal point of Romans 1 in chapter, in chapter 1, verse 16. He says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Just a real quick note. We have to ask this. What is it that's being revealed in the gospel? What, is, what does this say? Anybody want to shout it out? What does it say is being revealed in the gospel? Power of God. And it goes on, though. It says, for in it, the righteousness of God. That in the gospel, this is something that we have a tendency to do, sadly, in evangelicalism, is we have a tendency to think that the gospel is about us. In fact, at times, and not all of this is wrong, it's more about a focal issue, that we bring a lot of attention to how we feel about God, about what we get out of salvation, and it's true. We get wonderful things out of salvation. But according to Romans 1, verse 16 and 17, the gospel is not primarily about me. It is about God receiving glory as he reveals his righteousness. Now, I get wonderful things out of the gospel. I get salvation for my sin. I'm restored back to God. The gospel is good news for me, but it's still not about me. The chief agent in the gospel is God. Actually, arguably, the agent of the gospel is God. So even in the gospel, can you understand how already we're setting up a contrast between this and what was happening in Genesis 3? In Genesis 3, man is establishing himself. In the gospel, in Romans 1, God is saying, this is about me. Anytime we see something related to God's attributes that's being revealed, keep in mind that it is about him receiving glory. Anytime God gets to show who he is or one of his attributes, he is receiving glory from it. So, hopefully this is a foreshadowing. Anything that hinders 
the seeing of God's attributes, or the revealing of God, is a problem. Reading on. So the, the gospel exists to reveal God's righteousness for his glory. And our salvation benefits us hugely, but it's not about us. So verse 18. Now, Paul has just set this thing up. He's like, hey, yeah, God's glory is being revealed. His righteousness is being revealed. It's really great. Verse 18, he takes a turn and he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We would call for a logical transition word, right? So essentially, he's saying that God's righteousness is revealed in part because his wrath is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. What can we say then that is happening? If, if, if God is glorified anytime an attribute is revealed, what is happening when his wrath is revealed? Shout it out. What happens when God's wrath is revealed? Is his wrath an attribute? Yeah. So if he receives glory when an attribute is shared, what does he get from his wrath being revealed? He gets glory. Yeah. So I just need to make this little side note. A lot of times we get really uncomfortable with anything that mentions God's wrath. You guys notice this? I've noticed pastors sometimes kind of like hop right over it. I've heard Christian leaders make comments like, oh, God's never been mad at you. He's just madly in love with you. Blasphemy. That's just not true. The wrath of God is a recurring theme in Scripture. Now, we should point out that wrath, as we think of it in human terms, is usually something different. We think of wrath as like, I got really angry and lost control and flew off the handle. Right? I think of, we think of wrath as like a bad thing. But God, because, as we've already noted, is perfectly righteous and cannot be in relationship with sin, he has legitimate wrath against evil. And it's not out of control. It comes out of his nature. And his nature, he is perfect. Cool. So, everybody with me on this? Making sense? All right. Cool. Notice he says, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What do we just say is happening in the gospel? The righteousness of God is being revealed. That part of what's happening here for the unrighteous is that they're seeking to suppress the truth. That's a problem. Let's read on. This is for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. If I'm actually going to point out verse 22, it says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I always like to point out that what is happening in any form of idolatry, be it atheistic in its roots or in some kind of paganism, ultimately what is happening in unbelief is that the truth is being suppressed. God has revealed himself in creation. We call this general revelation. God has created a world of order and of beauty and that even in mankind, he is reflecting his image somehow so that things about humanity allow us to see that a God exists. The fact that I have the law of God written on my heart in the form of conscience 
is a way in which we, we can understand, hey, God is a, a God of, law, of order and ethics and morality, and that any time I am seeking to suppress any of this, I'm seeking to suppress the very existence of God. Is everybody following me on that? Because what is happening in unrighteousness is that humanity is looking to everything God has put out to reveal himself and saying like, nope, I don't want that. I would rather worship the creation than the creator. Everybody with me? Cool. I want to point out a little bit. I think my next slide, I've got a little explanation of, uh, can you click to the next one, man? Um, uh, one more. See if we got it. Yes. Uh, League of Ministries put out this quote. It says, some idolatry is crass, such as the worship of trees or nature. Other forms of idolatry are more refined, such as the exaltation of human reason above divine revelation. But any time we substitute something else for the God of the Bible, we attempt to have him share his glory with another. Anytime we deny one of his attributes, we conceive of him as less than the sovereign Lord of all. Does this make sense? That idolatry takes many forms. It can be me worshiping some statue, or it can be worshiping myself in the form of my reason or some other thing. Either way, what is happening is a critical, critical error. Everybody with me. Why is this so important? Like, as many, by the way, would say, Dan, come on, like, this is, how is this practical at all? And I don't know if you would understand what I'm saying when I say that. The idea that, like, what I am teaching here isn't five steps to being a better Christian or three principles for a better marriage. All that's coming out of this teaching is that God wants and deserves glory. Yeah. Cool. So sorry, my iPad just crashed, so I'm switching to paper. Um, let me just take a moment. Is this, this might be an uncomfortable thing for some of us, but we're going to dig in this next thing to say, see what the effects of us not believing are. Um, so we already said, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. 24 says, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So one of the first effects of denying who God is was that humanity began to increase in lust. And God says, okay, I am going to give you over to the lusts of your heart. And so one of, just pointing out, one of the signs that we have drifted from God and are elevating in idolatry is that we've, God has allowed us to be turned over to lust. We read on. It says, for this reason also, um, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So this degradation from understanding the image of God starts with simple lust. Degrading enough, but then degrades into actual compromise of the biblical roles of gender in sexuality. This is not, by the way, to say that that sin is any worse than other sins. It's just one of the ways that God says, okay, if you are going to deny me, I'm going to give you over to this thing. How interesting that it begins with regular lust and degrades into this. 
a little side note, keeping in mind that this is all related to God revealing himself, right? It says that when God created man, he created him in his image. Male and female, he created them. That the roles of man and woman are reflecting the image of God in a unique way. When I compromise that, be it in sexuality or in gender roles or otherwise, what is happening is a degradation of the image of God itself. It is a way in which we thumb our nose at God and saying, even the way you created me, I'm denying. And it's one more level of degradation. Recognize this is not popular teaching. It is the reality. Verse 28 says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give hearty or give approval to those who practice them. I mean, notice how the degradation continues. It begins simply with man saying, No, I want my own way and not yours. It is a robbing of God's glory. Switching over to idolatry, worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And the degradation that happens is first to lust, then to various perversions of gender, then to every type of evil, imaginable murder and strife. And it seems like the degradation just continues. It began with the denial that God was God. Everything started with us not worshiping God for who He is. Man. Yes, think about this, that everything comes back, all of my sin is rooted in my own pride that I don't humble myself before the mighty hand of God. So we should look at all this. I recognize the focus of all this is on God's glory. But I don't know about you. Right now what I'm feeling as I look at the greatness of God and the effects of me not trusting in Him, I feel terrible. Right? I I feel ashamed at my own sin that I would idolatrize, idolatrize if that's a word, idolize something else instead of God. And so my heart is grieved because I recognize that everything broken in the world is ultimately because of my disobedience we're not acknowledging God as God. Oh. Yet all of this that Paul is saying is in the context of God's righteousness being revealed. This means that even in the pouring out of his wrath, he is receiving glory for his righteousness. When else did God pour out his wrath? Anybody think of a time when God, in a consummate way, poured out his wrath for mankind? And the flood, yes, okay, that's a good one. I'm going for one even beyond that. The cross. God poured out his wrath for my, mankind on Christ Jesus on the cross. If you're tracing this, God is so righteous. His righteousness is revealed even in his wrath. When he poured out his wrath on the cross, it was Jesus taking on the wrath of God so that God would receive glory both for his righteousness 
for his wrath, and for his grace. Can you understand that as we're tracing all this and the other solas that we've talked through, God is the author and finisher of my faith. It is his grace and not my merit that brings me to salvation. It was his grace that allowed Jesus to pay that debt on the cross. Can you see that at every point, God is receiving glory? And that what he asks of me is that I would trust him and glorify him as God. So if we could very quickly turn to Mark chapter 12 as we finish this out. I recognize many pastors will say, and in closing, and then they don't meet it. They go on for a lot longer. I promise this is close to the end. So in verse 28 of Mark chapter 12, it says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which of the commandments is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. <sighs> Could you understand why this is the first and greatest commandment? That I first recognize that God is, and that I should love him with everything that I am, give him all the glory that he deserves. But I should always note that I can't even do that without the work of Christ in me. This is why we say that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. It's completely God's work and for his glory. And so as we're finishing out this time, I'm just going to speak the gospel to us. We recognize, and because Paul has already set up like half of it, we always talk about these four key points of the gospel. That God created us in his image for his glory. That we sinned and separated ourselves from God and brought all the brokenness that is in the world that Paul described here in Romans chapter 1. But that God, being rich in mercy, sent his only son, lived a perfect life, died to pay for everything we ever did wrong, and rose from the dead to give us new life. And that when we put our trust in him, repenting of our sin, repenting of our idolatry of self, repenting of all the sin that comes with it, and putting our trust completely in him, declaring him our Lord. You notice that even in Romans 10, 9, and 10, that even the moment of the gospel involves me repenting of my self-idolatry and putting God in the seat of of the throne of my heart. That even the moment of salvation is directly related to me repenting and believing. It's directly related to what we see in Romans 1, except Romans 1 is describing when I do the opposite. Make sense? And so that when I put my trust in Christ, He saves me and He restores me back to God. Something, by the way, to something greater than what was happening in the garden. That's the gospel. And God deserves glory for it. So, um, you guys know, I don't do a lot of like, and now, put these five points in. All I want us to do as a result of this is give God the glory he deserves. To no other person, no other thing, no other self. I cannot even acknowledge my own reason. I like logic, but I recognize that my reason itself is flawed by the fall. I can't even say that I came to the conclusion about God based on my reason. As he has sanctified my reason, it points clearly to God. But even that had to be fixed by salvation from his revelation. It's all about God. He deserves all of the glory. And so I'm going to pray. We're going to fellowship a little bit. But give God glory. That's all I got. So Father God, 
just fully recognizing that we are all idolaters to one degree or another who have repented of it. I recognize that my desire to, to elevate myself and think that I am something is still a part of the fall and it's still I am tempted to it from time to time. And so here we are killing sin today by repenting and saying, God, I know that I am nothing without you. I do nothing. I contribute nothing to my salvation. It is completely you who has done this work. I contribute nothing to my own existence. God, that is from you. This entire universe you have created, revealing yourself, you deserve glory for it. Your righteousness is revealed in the gospel when Jesus paid our sin debt and rose from the dead. Your your glory is revealed in all of this. So God, receive glory. Even as I say it, my words seem meager. God, you are worth so much more than we can even express. So receive all the glory we have to give. Receive our lives. May our lives be living sacrifices that bring glory to you. And God, just soak up the glory because you are. You are one. Lord, may we love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So God, may we love you today. Receive glory. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.